long waiting lists, people not being able to get care for. You know, if this is the only type of health care reform you can offer, that's pretty sad. That's pretty sad upon a nation that they're willing to kill their people because they're not willing to care for them. And that's exactly what we have. Hi again, everybody. Welcome back to The Narrative. Mike Andrews and Aaron Bear joining you today. No David Mahan. He's relocated to Nebraska We've or shipped something. him off to Nebraska. We traded him for a, a washing machine here at the office. It was a, a fair trade. We and feel like. lots of corn. Let's lots not of forget corn. the corn exactly. from Nebraska. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he went off uh, our, our good friends. I, I don't know if a lot of folks realize that CCV is in a network of what are called family policy councils. We're, we're independent groups. Um, but we, we just sort of all stay in touch. We do very similar work in different states. And so David went off to see our friends at the uh, Nebraska Family Alliance, NFA, uh, under the direction of our dear friend Karen Bowling, because uh, they've got an abortion amendment coming up. And um, we're going to share some of the lessons we learned here. And uh, I think David's going to speak to some of their pastors. And uh, all I can say is uh, better him than me than go to, <laughs> go to Nebraska right now. So it's, best it's luck, David. It's beautiful in February, I'm <laughs> exactly. told. I've heard. Nebraska in February, man. I, no uh, nefarious motives on exactly. your part sending him there, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? You know, you cut me off in traffic one time, you get shipped off to, <laughs> to, to Nebraska. That's, that's, a, that's, good. <laughs> that's a good warning if you don't want to go to the Midwestern Plain States. Exactly. Be that, nice that's, to your that's, boss. That's how it goes. <laughs> well, you mentioned the, the abortion initiatives that are coming to Nebraska and yeah. several other states throughout the country. And, of course, we dealt with it here in Ohio in mm-hmm. November and. An interesting news story the last couple of days that I don't think, well, I'm going to step back, I know is not being covered accurately by the media because we see that the Ohio Attorney General's office is asking for some clarification or some review on parts of the heartbeat bill. Uh, that may still be in effect despite issue one passing in November. So there, yeah. there's some nuance here, but it's worth, I think, our listeners understanding what this is all about. But we probably need to lead with the fact that this is not trying to say that the six-week ban should still be in effect. It's just other provisions within that law. Yeah, you know, th- this is an important part because, you know, one of the the things when we were reading and talking about issue one was we were really highlighting that the the broad nature of the way issue one was written could have a lot of implications. Now, the reality is the way the process actually works is um, the, the implications of the law actually don't go into effect until a court actually comes in and interprets it, right? This is, this is why typically when we're working on drafting legislation, uh, we talk about being as specific as possible, right? Because the, the broader you write something, uh, the the more you know the more areas it'll impact right uh, and sometimes that's intentional it's the reason why we have things like free speech right we, where we have a, a broad First Amendment broad protections for free speech but then there's other things that we're very specific on right um, again you take what we just did with the Safe Act for example where we we were really specific about you know prohibiting the the usage of these drugs uh, for the purpose of you know gender transition or transgender medicine things like that we we really specified in there because some of these drugs like like lupron the the puberty blocking drug that's a a drug that is legitimately used for a condition that's called precocious puberty right that that folks that that some kids a very small amount of kids but some kids actually suffer from has nothing to do with transgenderism or anything like that it's a it's a genetic disorder um and we didn't we wanted to make sure in drafting that bill that we uh, didn't uh, prohibit that. And so, you know, th- this is sort of a, a part of the lawmaking process. And, and so as we were going through issue one, we were looking at this and saying, listen, the, the way this is written, a radical judge or radical judges could take this in 
and take it to crazy limits, right? It's it's not a, uh, especially when you look at where the, the how leftist judges work mm-hmm. typically, right? They they took the um, you know the the the, uh, the they found a right to the uh, to abortion and gay marriage out of the U.S. Constitution when they say nothing about either of those two issues, yeah. right? Um, and so what what Attorney General Yost his his position has been is that listen, you know. Very clearly, the, the way this is written, the way issue one was written, having gestational limits on abortion prior to viability are, are not going to be constitutional under the, the Ohio Constitution, right? That, that's, that's, that's very clear in there. But some of these other laws we have, in effect, um, we think actually are still constitutional. We, there, there's a reasonable argument to make that they're still constitutional. And until a court rules otherwise, we're going to act like they are. Uh, and that's sort of the framing that set up this whole story. Yeah. And and so specifically Senate Bill 23, which deals with some adoption issues and things like that, that that we're saying there are those elements of the heartbeat law that still apply even with issue one in effect. Correct. Yeah. And, and that's what really what what the ACLU and Planned Parenthood and all these guys that are suing to, to repeal uh, the heartbeat bill. What, what they did is they they filed, you know, uh, they filed a lawsuit that said that entire piece of legislation, all of the heartbeat bill is now unconstitutional you need to uh, rescind it. Well, there, there's a major problem with that, and that's not actually how courts work, right, or how the judicial system works, right? The way the way the court works is it takes individual provisions, individual parts of codes, and lines that up with the state constitution and says, is this constitutional, constitutional or not, right? So in the heartbeat bill, like most pieces of legislation, there's multiple facets to it. Obviously, there's the, the, the main facet, which said you can't do abortion once a heartbeat is detected in an unborn child. Uh, but then there were other things about uh, preferring, you know, preferring uh, foster care and adoption over abortion in in sort of state policy. Uh, there were things, you know, some some technical administrative things about, you know, renumbering the way uh, Ohio Revised Code uh, uh, sorted out abortion policy, right? Because you know you had really decades of laws regulating abortion, uh, and one of the things we did in the heartbeat bill was kind of renumber things to make things a little bit more organized when courts mm-hmm. were reviewing. You know, what what the ACLU is coming in and saying, Planned Parenthood is coming in and saying is all of that is now unconstitutional, which is nonsense, right? Uh, they, they're, you know, some of those other things have nothing to do with what issue one was was about. Uh, and so what Yost came and said was like, you know, and, and in this type of filing, he just said, hey, um, FYI, we don't agree that all of this, they're arguing that the entire heartbeat bill is, is tossed out. We disagree. They weren't saying that, you know, the OST is not coming out here and arguing saying, Hey, we can still have gestational limits, but he's, what he was just coming out and saying is their argument here that the entire heartbeat bill is, uh, is, uh, unconstitutional, um, is just flatly wrong and a silly thing to make a silly argument to make. Uh, and if, you know, one, if, if Yost doesn't say that, then all the court has in front of them is the one argument, and uh, they'll they'd likely side with that and, and move forward. And so, you know, again, this is one of these things where one kudos to Attorney General Yost and, and his Solicitor General um, Elliot Geyser for being very intentional and clear about what the law says. Um, but also, this is where again the, the media is just sloppy. This is one of these things where the media does this, where they try to gin up. Uh, sort of outrage when, no, this is a very technical and important legal principle that Yost is defending here. And something that needs to happen, to to your point about just that broad language that we saw in issue one, even defining individual is probably something that's going to end up in the courts at some time. So certainly the existing laws in the books 
you're going to have to have some court cases that kind of figure out what still applies and what doesn't. Well, and, and Mike, this is a really important part in terms of what CCV's position and, and what I think conservatives in Ohio uh, really need to be driving home right now, which is we, we're not going to just concede that you know, abortion is unregulated now, right? Um, the, the reality is, um, you know, if, you know, women still deserve uh, basic health and safety standards in abortion clinics, right? We, we don't want to see a bunch of Kermit Gosnells all over the state of Ohio. Um, and, and you know, women deserve to know the, the truth about, uh, the, about life in the womb, about their unborn child, right? So how, ensuring women have access to things like ultrasounds before abortions, ensuring women are, uh, are given all the information, right? Again, you know, it's, it's, it's very much like the SAFE Act uh, where, you know, the people that are, have the greatest financial incentive uh, are the ones, uh, are the so-called medical experts that women are, are interacting with, right? And so this is where the state certainly uh, has an interest to ensure women are provided with that basic uh, health and safety information, that ba- basic informed consent about abortion. Uh, so they can't be pressured or coerced into making a decision that they're going to regret. Um, and so, you know, really for us, th- this fight for for women uh, and, and broadly this fight for life, right? Because we, we still very much believe uh, a, a lot of women when they're, we've seen when they're given full information and accurate information, they're not going to choose abortion. Um, that's very much there. We still want to long-term get back and, and get this out of the state constitution. We've not hidden that. Um, our, our ability to pass state laws on that it, to some degree is limited right now, uh, at least state laws that'll go into effect. Um, but there are things that we can do. We, we're, we're not conceding uh, right now, especially because I mean, you, you'll remember this, Mike, during the campaign, every time we talked about, hey, this is written so broadly, you know, a court could say that all the health and safety standards uh, regulating abortion will be tossed out. The media, the yes campaign, everyone said, oh, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Well, OK, if, if, if that's what you're saying and that's what you sold to voters, we're going to hold you accountable now. Yeah. Well, and since that's an update on one piece of CCV legislation in the past, another one that's worth revisiting because we saw some news on this uh, this week, too, is backpack bill and not that we got full backpack done but we were and hopefully our listeners remember we talked over the summer about how in the state's budget we saw an expansion of the ed choice fanny pack right we got fanny pack done that's uh yeah yeah. was that like for 40s dads exactly yeah right uh, i don't know man like now fanny packs are back now except they're wearing them over their shoulders have you seen this i have not seen that like i was and i want no part of it i want to be clear on that i you know, I, I live in the city of Columbus. I mean, you get this. So it's, it's a very different clientele in, in where I live <laughs> than where you live. Uh, but I was driving by, driving down the street, and I saw dudes the other day wearing, it literally was a fanny pack, but it was over the shoulder. And I was like, what? Anyway, sorry. I'm, I digress. But we passed the fanny pack uh, in the state budget. <laughs> we we did. Saying. We did. So yeah. with the expanded school choice program, basically tripled the number of applicants this past year, which means... Yeah. It did what we hoped, and more kids are having access, more families have access to the education that they deem best for them. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Mike, there, there's so much to unpack with this. We're, we're you know, 82,000 kids are, are have picked up using the, the EdChoice voucher uh, this year. And it's a story from the the, the plane dealer that, that covered this. Uh, and there's so much, first and foremost, this is why... Christians should engage in public policy. This is what we can do together. This is where, I mean, these are real lives that are changed um, because people got involved in this process, right? 
Um, and it's true. We didn't get all the way to where we wanted to, right? We, we made every kid eligible in the budget. Um, what backpack is, is, is saying that every kid's eligible for the same amount, uh, and that they can use it for any type of education they want, even home education. Uh, this is just every kid eligible, but it kind of scales down once you start making over 450% of the federal poverty level, um, and only for private school tuition. Um, but, but that was such a ma massive shift, a massive change in the way we were funding education and to see so many families take advantage of this program now. And it's moving Ohio closer to that principle of, of funding students and not systems. That, that's a game changer. And as with anything reported by the media, there's some hand wringing going on as we're, <laughs> we're celebrating the numbers of students that are accessing this. And, yeah. and there's the financial concern that's brought up like this is going to cost more than expected. But again, and we've talked about this, when you look at the numbers of what it costs to fund a student in the public schools and what the right. public dollars, the state dollars are that go toward that student, the voucher is still only a percentage of that. And I think they, they reported in this uh, Cleveland.com article that out of the Columbus district, the state portion of the $25,000 to send a school to the failing Columbus city schools, the state portion of that's about 9,500. So yeah. when you consider that the cost of a voucher is 6,100, like that's still a net savings to the state. It, it's, it's a great deal to the state. And again, the, the, the bottom line on this entire uh, story um, is what is our state, uh, what, what, why is the state involved in education, right? Is it about building up big systems or is it about helping kids, right? That's, that's the thing that, that the, the, the school districts, the teachers unions, they, they always want to ignore when they start complaining about the cost of school choice programs because one, on a, on a pure dollar-for-dollar dollar basis, it's more cost-effective to have school choice than it is uh, not. But, but two, the, the question is, so these people are saying they would rather trap kids in a failing school system than give them the ability to go elsewhere, right? Um, and these families are taxpayers, right? They, you, they're, they're, they're trying to tell these families that are paying their taxes, that are paying their dues, that they have to go to these schools that are utterly failing, that are doing a terrible job. And mind you, you know, I remember we did this, we found these numbers a, a few years back, you know, Youngstown City Schools was the, the worst example of it, but it was like, you know, only 31%, 32% of the money that the school district was, was getting was actually going into the classroom, uh, right? So, I, I mean, these school districts massively, Columbus City Schools is a billion dollar a year corporation ostensibly, um, they're, they're massively mismanaging their money. Uh, and these are families that are finally able to get that help to go elsewhere. Uh, and it's, it's a game changer for folks. And this is only the beginning, you know, and we've seen this firsthand too. It's always worth mentioning the, the school plants that we've worked with at Westside Christian and crown prep. When you see kids that are taken out of that system and put in a place where they're known and cared for in the way that they actually begin to thrive academically when before yeah. they were struggling so much like it's a really cool thing to be part of oh it's it's amazing and, and it's especially there's so much about this program that that is a, a culture changer right and, and we always talk about how culture is the assumptions we make about the world around us um and when you see something like this where now you know the the culture in america has been especially in our inner cities is what's your address this is your school right and and almost incentivizing encouraging parents to to check out 
uh, of uh, that, that conversation about where their kids go to school and how their kids are educated. Well, now you have parents that are being told, oh, I have the ability. I, I actually have to make the choice. Am I going to send my kid to this public school or am I, am I going to send them to a private school or do, do something else? There's, there's actually options for me. And what we've seen in that, and this is a, a University of Arkansas study, is actually when parents have to make that intentional choice, they're now more invested in that, in, in, the, in the success of it. So it actually helps improve the outcomes in the public schools. Uh, you know, obviously we think uh, kids going to a Christian school is the best environment for them because it's, it's the one place where they're going to actually be told who made them and what they were made for. Um, but uh, it, it, we, we do see that, that culture-changing aspect of, of school choice programs like this that really uh, change the way families think about education. Uh, and again, that's just one more aspect of what we did in the budget this year and where we want to be going uh, that's going to have that long-term impact on, on Ohio. And, and real quick, as we wrap up our new segment today, not a whole lot of action going on over at the state house, but we did just want to give a, a couple quick updates about schedule and things like that because we're we're heading into primary season. Oh and yeah, we're, what? Uh, four, oh, t- uh, six, six weeks. weeks six yeah. weeks. Yeah, early voting starts. I, I, actually, if you got our rundown uh, email <laughs> this week, you saw uh, that uh, it, it, we're two weeks out from early voting starting again. It, this is which means two weeks left to register to vote if you're not. Oh so my goodness! Yeah, get out and do that. And, and that's. This is just the, the last uh, year has just been the craziest election cycle, uh, light cycles uh, of <laughs> of my life because it feels like around every corner is another election. Um, but yeah, already we have a, a, a an election coming up. But we also have, um, you know, I know for a lot of folks you've been tracking with the the what a lot of times it's called the bathroom bill. Uh, the bill again, groundbreaking ideas. Dudes use the dudes' bathroom. Ladies use the ladies' bathroom. I know, right? Uh, really, really scandalous. Just uh, utterly blowing scandalous. minds over here. Um, but that bill, House Bill 183, was uh, supposed to be scheduled for a vote in committee this week, uh, and it got uh, canceled. The vote got canceled. Uh, bill's not dead. We still still expect the bill to move. Um, but this is a pro- this is a part of the process. Um, very, we were very disappointed that it didn't come up for a vote. We're going to continue to drive. Uh, that bill, because again, it's a it's a simple idea. It's got broad support, uh, but it matters. I, I literally was having a conversation with a, uh, a a guy today in the in Allen County, um, who their public school district was having uh, boys and girls bathrooms there because of a, a an edict from the Biden administration. And something like this would really provide clarity to say, no, you you can't do that in the state of Ohio. Um, uh, but this is this is what this process looks like, and this is why we have to stay engaged. Uh, is because these things can very easily go sideways if uh, people aren't paying attention and driving. Well, that's going to wrap up the new segment for today. Hope you'll stick around. We've got an interview coming up with Alex Schadenberg. We're going to talk about uh, Canada's medical aid in dying program. Uh, It's the other side of the pro-life coin that we don't often talk about. And I think this is going to be one of those necessary conversations for Christians to think through some of these issues because if they're in Canada now, they're coming here. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. They, it's it's going to advance. We've seen it already in a few states in the United States. So keep it tuned in. Uh, you won't want to miss this interview with Alex Schattenberg coming up. Hey, narrative listeners. You know, Christians in the marketplace today face more unique and challenging threats than ever before. Businesses are following woke capitalism. Chambers of commerce are beholden to social justice. And secular activists are chipping away Christians' First Amendment rights. As Ohio's only Christian Chamber of Commerce, the Christian Business Partnership stands in the gap to advocate for, to educate, and to celebrate Christian business owners. Joining the partnership also allows businesses to provide their employees with health care insurance, 
workers' compensation, and exclusive banking and educational discounts. To find out more and to join, go to cbpohio.org. That's cbpohio.org. Welcome back to The Narrative. Mike Andrews, Aaron Baer, and we're joined now by Alex Schadenberg, who's one of the world's premier opponents of euthanasia and assisted suicide. He's the co-founder and executive director of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, which was founded in 1998 and based in London, Ontario, Canada. He's produced the Euthanasia Deception documentary that explores 15 years of euthanasia legislation in Belgium. He's traveled the world speaking about the issue, authored countless opinion columns, and moderates the world's most widely read blog devoted to the issue. Alex, it's so great to have you as a guest on The Narrative. Thanks for joining us. Hey, it's it's great being here, and uh, these are difficult topics, but uh, hey, let's, uh, let's uh, try and do our best uh, uh, explaining these things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Center for Christian Virtue, we are a pro-life yeah. organization unabashedly. Um, we've fought for the the unborn in numerous ways, including some legislation that just passed here in Ohio last November. And this is kind of the other side of the life issue that I don't think gets enough of attention. So as we talk about um, specifically Canada's medical aid and dying program, can you, can you just sort of walk us through what the program is and some of its history yeah. So I want to talk about Canada, but I'm also going to talk about the U.S. because you are in Ohio, and I think it's uh, it's very important to talk about what's going on with assisted suicide in the U.S. But Canada legalized euthanasia in 2016. So that is, uh, well, basically, we have not had this in place for eight years yet, because it was June of 2016. And in a very short period of time, we went from euthanasia for the terminally ill to now euthanasia for people who are, we, well, the big debate has been euthanasia for mental illness, people with mental illness alone. We've, uh, we're debating euthanasia for children, euthanasia for the incompetent, euthanasia of newborns. All these topics are being debated in Canada, and it started with legalizing euthanasia for the terminally ill. We expanded very fast in Canada. We, uh, in 2021, expanded the law to take out that terminal illness requirement because the uh, the legislators thought it was discriminatory. They thought that it wasn't right to deny somebody who's not terminally ill uh, lethal de uh, death by lethal poisons. That uh, those people who are also suffering from other causes, whether that be chronic conditions, you know, irremediable medical conditions is actually how they defined it, which is uh, really an undefinable term. Uh, nonetheless, uh, they should also have access to this. So this is how we expanded quickly. And now we see euthanasia for people who are homeless, euthanasia for poverty, euthanasia for people having difficulty receiving medical treatment. And it's gone really uh, chaos in our country with killing. In fact, I just uh, wrote an article the other day on this, in fact, two days ago, uh, about euthanasia and the data. And I, I'm showing that uh, I'm anticipating that we killed approximately 16,000 people in Canada uh, in 2023 by euthanasia, representing approximately 5% of all deaths, which is significant. Uh, Quebec was the highest in Canada at 6.8% of all deaths. And if you start looking at the reasons and the whole thing about this, it's um, it's gone from, uh, from a crazy idea to being more crazy to being insane. Yeah, you know, Alex, I was you said something that I was reading your blog uh earlier today uh about just uh you mentioned homeless folks that are now uh using this program, right? That that basically uh, there was one uh story you highlighted of an individual who didn't want to die but didn't have a place to go or stay. 
right. and can you talk about that that slippery slope of how yeah. that happens how you go from mentally ill to to a, a homeless individual in a tough situation that says i guess this is what i got to do so that that whole came into being starting around 2021 when we removed the terminal illness requirement in the law so the, the law never was well defined in the first place anyway. So originally the law said that your natural death had to be reasonably foreseeable. Now that was their terminal illness definition, but in fact, they never defined it. So, you know, we all sort of smile at that saying, what do you mean your natural death must be reasonably foreseeable? How do you define that? I, I sort of think that all of our natural deaths are reasonably re foreseeable. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> That's coming. But, yeah. but nonetheless... And I shouldn't laugh at it because how serious it is because we're talking about how many people who died because of this. There's been uh, over 60,000 people who've died in Canada over this law already. But when they changed it in 2021, what was remaining in the law was that your natural death had to be they, – they got rid of the natural death being reasonably foreseeable. What remained in the law was that you have to have an irremediable medical condition. So during that whole debate, the uh, disability lobby were very clear that uh, this meant that this law would be specifically oriented towards killing people with disabilities. And in fact, they were correct because an irremediable medical condition, you could be defined as like a chronic condition, et cetera. And obviously someone who has a disability has some type of irremediable medical condition or they wouldn't be disabled, right? That's just the reality. So what's happening is these people who are living in poverty often have disabilities. If you if you look at just the the basic data, uh, a lot of people with disabilities are living with poverty. A lot of people with disabilities are finding themselves homeless or they have uh, inappropriate housing, meaning they, they're living so in substandard housing. And if you consider the cost of living has shot up in the last few years, it's really then put a serious uh, uh, problem for a lot of people, forcing them into severe poverty. And they, uh, they're they uh, being approved for euthanasia based on having an irremediable medical condition. So that's their disability, but they're asking for it because of their abject poverty, their homelessness. Uh, the other thing is the other uh, reality, which would be a little bit different in the U.S. and Canada, is we have universal health care. But in that universal healthcare system, sometimes it's very, very difficult to get medical treatment. It's very difficult. I mean, you're not paying for it yourself. It's not about having uh, an insurance company cover your uh, your uh, medical treatment for you because you're paying into a policy or whatever. It's not like being on Medicaid, even though it has some similarities. But you're in a long waiting line for some sort for forms of treatment. So we've had several people who have died by euthanasia because they were waiting for treatment. We had a case just recently in uh, Victoria, B.C., now, if you've ever been to Victoria, BC, or you want to Google it, it's a beautiful place to live, <laughs> but it wasn't a good place for this person who was diagnosed with cancer. It was a man who was diagnosed with cancer. He was told that his condition was treatable, so it wasn't an issue of, oh, there's nothing we can do for you, but the waiting line for cancer treatment, it was so long that he was constantly calling the doctor and they were saying, well, we, you know, we're, we're waiting to be able to schedule your treatment. We're waiting to schedule your treatment. After 10 weeks, he went to the oncologist and they said, oh, sorry, your your cancer has spread to the point now where there's nothing we can do for you. And he then agreed to die by euthanasia. Well, huh. you know, this is ridiculous. Okay, this is ridiculous, but this is exactly the same kind of thing that's happening in Canada. Anyway, going back to it, people are being approved for euthanasia bank based on having an irremediable medical condition, which would be like a disability or a, a chronic condition. But in fact, they're asking for it often because of these social reasons. And uh, and it's not only poverty and uh, as bad as poverty is or homelessness, it's also the reality that a lot of people going through difficult times in their life start to feel like there is no meaning or purpose in their life and they qualify for death. Uh, they're dying because they feel that they have no meaning or purpose. They're qualifying because of their irremediable medical condition.
So, uh, Alex, I, whenever we're dealing with a situation like this, I mean, what what you're talking about here, especially this, you know, th this camel's nose under the tent of, you know, terminally ill to to now we're to this place of mentally ill and all of these other things of, of conditions that are uh, qualifying for uh, for medical aid and dying for, for assisted suicide. Um, you know, the. We see that same thing in a lot of different areas, right? We saw that in in Ohio yes. with with yep. marijuana, right? We see it with with things like gambling, with with all of these different things that that they they get their nose. But one of the things that we always ask is, okay, so who's benefiting from this, especially financially? So who who benefits from the 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 medical aid? Is is there an industry that's driving this? Is there is is it just pure ideologues that think you should be able to like liber like weird libertarian ideologues that think they you should be able to kill yourself? Who are the people that are really pushing for, for this program? There is no easy answer to that question because it's a total mixture. So you have your ideologues, and they, they absolutely believe that you should have a right to die. You should be able to, at any time of your life, uh, determine that you've had enough of life. Um, a recent article, I just published an article about an article that was written by a Toronto philosopher that believes that, no, if, if you want to go to your doctor and ask for the lethal poison, Go for it. Uh, the doctor should have no right to ask you why you're thinking of dying. And that, that's kind of a, a crazy thing. Now, he'd be on the extreme end of the spectrum. But the average person actually buys into this, not because of any of these philosophical reasons, but because they're made to fear a bad death. So in my own country, and you'll see that in, in uh, also going on in the states where they're trying to legalize assisted suicide, the euthanasia lobby, the assisted suicide lobby, the death lobby, what they do is they first publish all these articles about people who are going through difficult health conditions, and they make it seem like there is only two choices. You have two choices. You can either die in severe pain, or you can have assisted suicide or euthanasia. Those are your two choices. And that's how they sell it. And they create this fear-mongering situation where, in fact, people are fearing a bad death. So you create enough demand for killing, and people start saying, yes, that's exactly what we need. Uh, and a lot of people will say, oh, I recognize there's a problem with this concept. I can see how this could be abused. But, you know, I don't want to die like the person in that newspaper article I read. And, you know, you can understand as a human being where it's all coming from. So the the philosophical arguments, the movement that wants to, I would just say, uh, push killing, they're, they're, they're brainwashing the public into believing that this is the way to go. And, and this is a serious problem because, you know, these issues are hard to win when you're talking about, uh, how would you say, emotions related to suffering. You know, <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to suffer. I'm not saying that there isn't any purpose or reason to suffering. The other thing, of course, it's a lie, as you know. Uh, we don't need to suffer like that. There is no reason for that. Uh, I know that there's medical abandonment that a lot of people experience, but nonetheless, we can properly care for people if that's what we choose to do as a culture. But uh, Alex, do you see the hospitals or medical association or the pharmaceutical companies that create these these lethal sort of cocktails uh, that are, are selling this or are are they proponents of this? Is that are they doing this for health savings costs? I mean, these are all sort of things I've I've yeah. heard related to this industry. Is that is there truth to that that you've seen? Well, certainly the healthcare insurance companies, for instance, Kaiser is one of the biggest ones in the U.S. They uh, they've been promoting assisted suicide in a serious manner, uh, but for them it's a big savings. Obviously, if you've got a health insurance policy that you've been paying into, but then you decide to die by assisted suicide, obviously they're going to save serious cash because you didn't seek treatment. Uh, the reality is, is the uh, drug company should not be supporting this. 
uh, as you are approaching death to properly care for your pain and symptoms. Let's say you had cancer as an example. Uh, cancer can be, uh, cancer can be for many people, not really a painful death. For other people, yes, it can be very painful. Nonetheless, you know what I'm getting to. There's such a variance based on the type of cancer you would have, et cetera. Uh, but the point of it is, is that um, um, the pharmaceutical companies, uh, they're involved heavily with making serious money off of people who are sick. So obviously killing them isn't an advantage to them. In the whole system, though, it does save the culture a lot of money. And I, and I don't like to get there because the fact of it is there are these some of these um, you know, people who would say, oh, well, then it's a good thing if it saves money. You know, we've got enough cost in our system. But the fact of it is, is yes, dead people don't need medical treatment, so they don't cost money. And dead people don't uh, don't collect old age pensions. And dead people don't collect disability pensions. So obviously speaking, there's a fair amount of money saved by uh, killing people. Yeah. And creating a culture where killing is seen as the uh, acceptable option to these uh, human situations. Alex, your, your last couple of points that you've made, you mentioned words like suffering and pain and, and this being used as a as a way to escape those things. But I'm, I'm wondering, does it actually deliver on that? Does assisted suicide, is it actually painless? I, I know that's no. one of the promises of it, but yeah. uh, because we're dealing with so many unknowns as far as the, the drugs that you've mentioned, mm-hmm. um, can it deliver what it promises? So the assisted suicide drugs that they use in the U.S. are it does not lead to a painless death per se. A lot of uh, the people like um, the the drugs that they use they they use a three drug system. I don't have to go into it uh, very much, but I I do can, I can tell you very clearly. There's been quite a few articles that have been written about the fact that these these drugs uh, burn your throat. They're actually not designed uh, for you to take them. Uh, in a in a mixture and drink them down. They're not designed for that purpose. They're actually more designed for injection purposes, which is what we do in Canada, which is euthanasia. So I should actually tell you the difference. In Canada, we have uh, euthanasia, which is homicide. So the doctor uh, kills you by lethal injection. It's the same lethal poisons. It's the same. It's the same ideology. The doctor agrees that your life is not worth living. So there's no difference in the intention. There's no difference really in the drugs they use. The difference is how they apply it. So in euthanasia, the doctor or the nurse injects you. In the case of assisted suicide, the doctor gives you a prescription for those lethal drugs, and you have to take it yourself. The lethal poisons. Uh, but it's not. It's it's a horrific tasting sort of substance that you mix together, and usually they mix it in with in with something they like to drink it burns their throats um uh, there has been very long drawn out deaths so you see that in the data out of oregon washington state where it's been legal for the longest period of time quite a bit of data the longest death was i believe 104 hours in oregon Uh, every year there's deaths that go into two and a half to three days so you know these are long drawn out deaths often uh they're not quite what you call quick peaceful painless they're, they can be quite horrific. Uh, but nonetheless, the other side wants to sell it as quick, peaceful, and painless because that's what everyone's looking for. They sell what you want, but of course, it's like a bait and switch. We'll give you this, but you're going to get that. That's exactly how it sort of works. So almost every state that has legalized assisted suicide has expanded their legislation. And this is the key thing. So this year, there's 19 states that are considering an assisted suicide bill. Uh, and the assisted suicide lobby is pushing some of those states to states that will not clearly not pass it because they are they're states that are quite conservative thinking, uh, quite pro-life, as we would say. Uh, but uh, there are several states that I'm very concerned about, including uh, Massachusetts, New York, 
uh, Maryland, and uh, there's a few others like that that I'm very concerned about. But the fact of it is, is they, they tend to present a bill which uh, looks like the original Oregon style bill. And then, of course, in, within a couple of years, they're going to expand that legislation. They're going to change it. And they do that on purpose. It's called a bait and switch because they know that it's hard to get these bills passed. But then it's much easier once it's passed to amend them later. So, for instance, uh, right now, Washington State has a bill. Uh, Washington State already legalized assisted suicide back in 2009. They expanded their legislation a few years ago. Uh, but what's happened in Washington State is that um, they are now trying to take away the right of religiously affiliated healthcare institutions from not providing. So in Washington State, therefore, Catholic and other religiously affiliated medical institutions don't provide assisted suicide, and they're trying to force them to have to provide. Are you seeing any states back off of it that have gone that way or starting to pull it back at all or like i mean as we're hearing these awful stories and again most of the the, the terrible stories i hear are out of canada or i think is it switzerland that also has it in in europe um yeah. are you seeing any any countries or states starting to, to maybe pull back a little bit on this the difficulty is is that in most states where they legalize it you get this sort of normalization effect that occurs mm. such as in my own country where you know, the very first year we had, you know, about a thousand deaths. And as I say, uh, last year, I think we had 16,000 deaths. So when you start looking at that, you can see that there's been a major shift very fast. Uh, the other thing about it is that um, so we haven't actually seen states reverse it. Uh, we did see that happen in Australia, though. Uh, but then uh, now it's been reversed back the other way and they've legalized again. Um, in my own country, though, we did legalize euthanasia for mental illness. And you probably realize that because that's sort of a topic we brought up earlier. Uh, but we put a moratorium on it because the government wasn't sure how they were going to kill people with mental illnesses, as crazy as that is. Uh, but nonetheless, now we've put another, um, the government's talking about putting a hold on this until March of 2027. Uh, the crazy thing is, is that um, even the hold is seen as a victory. And yet the government's not saying we're not going to do this. They're just saying we're going to wait because we're not, we're not quite sure how to make this equitable, how to do this properly. Because if you think about it, a lot of people with mental illness their condition, their disease, or their, uh, how would you say, what they're living with in their mental illness is causing them to have suicidal ideation. So then you start asking the question, when did the treatment for suicidal ideation become suicide? And it's a serious point. We had a case last summer in Vancouver of Catherine Mentler. Catherine uh, went to the media because she was so upset with what happened to her. She's a woman who is uh, in her 30s who was at the time experiencing suicidal ideation. This was not new for her. She makes it clear she's had mental health issues, uh, but she knew she needed to go to the hospital to get help. So she went to the Vancouver General Hospital and they told her, Sorry, Catherine, we have no beds available in our psychiatric department. They're, they're full up. You're out of luck. And we can't schedule any psychiatric uh, help for you until November. This was June. Okay. So then the counselor said, and by the way, we're wondering if you've uh, thought about euthanasia. Think about that. Someone's gone to the hospital because they're experiencing suicidal ideation. They're seeking help. And the counselor says, oh, by the way, have you considered euthanasia? It's, yeah. it's absolutely insane. Alex, I, I do want to ask the question, and this might be a little unfair to, to ask, but, you know, sitting here in the States and watching things like this unfold in Canada, you know, in some ways, when I visit Canada, it feels very much like the U.S., but there, there's things like this where the, the nation feels yeah. so much further to the left or or further down this path. And what's culturally different in, in Canada that, that, that makes things like this 
really take off that that might be different than broadly in the U.S. Obviously, you have states that are, are more liberal than other states, but it, it what is it about the Canadian culture that's just yeah. broadly? And you're more in Ohio, liberal? for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Canada, Canada, for instance, right off the bat, is sort of proud of having a universal healthcare system, which makes us uh, quite uh, liberal in that thinking. But you become then more dependent upon your nation, and you start thinking of things very differently. So we have a far more socialist nation right off the bat. If you also consider our taxation issues, we are heavily taxed uh, in everything. Our, our, you know, you just put gasoline in your vehicle and realize how much tax we'll have to pay in Canada. It's insane. The crazy thing is, is being in any state, you would think we would actually have property cared for people who are homeless. We wouldn't have such an issue with people with disabilities being uh, in poverty. You would think that uh, people would not be seeking uh, euthanasia, even though it's legal, uh, because they can't get medical treatment. Because if you look at our taxes, we're obviously paying enough of taxes to get our medical treatment, right? Uh, so when you start considering that, you realize right off the bat that the nanny state's a failure situation in Canada. Uh, we are highly taxed and highly undercared for in the country. We've got massive problems with homelessness. And, you know, it's one thing to live in um, a southern state or a, a mid sort of state in the U.S. where, yeah, in the mid states, it gets sort of cold, but not crazy cold. But to live in Canada and go through homelessness uh, there's certain months of the year you don't want to be there. That's a crazy idea. Uh, and yes, and yet uh, we have a whole pile of tent cities. My own city of London, Ontario, uh, the recent report came out saying that we've got 600 people uh, who are homeless at all times, including right now in the winter. That's wow. uh, that's uh, that's uh, doesn't make sense considering the amount of taxes we pay in our nanny state. Well, so Alex is. As you're explaining that, I'm thinking that that there are a whole lot of public policy problems that lead to this, and the yep. it almost looks like they're packaging medical aid and dying as the public policy solution. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, what what are you hopeful for in terms of a potential actual solution where where this reliance on medical aid and dying is lessened or abolished altogether? Well, the only th way we can make any change at all in this country is by having government shift, government change, because the fact of it is, is our, our current government is very, very, very pro-death. Our prime minister has beautiful hair, much nicer hair than mine. No. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, he's uh, he's very pro-death and his policies are very, very, very pro-death. So he's got to go if we're going to make any changes at all in this country. That's just the reality. But also he's bankrupting our country. We don't have to get into all that. That's a whole other show. Call yeah. me in. We can talk about that. <laughs> the fact of it is, it's a, and we're not very far from you either. You're in Ohio. Yeah. Ontario's not too far. We're just a hop, skip, and a jump. Um Nonetheless, uh, the fact is, is that uh, we need a, ch a shift in the country. And one of the things that's causing it is the fact that um, we have a serious uh, health care crisis going on in the country. And health care is provincial, not federal. But every single province is having these serious health care crises to a different degree. And yet there is no answer to that crisis. They keep saying, oh, well, we're going to improve this. We're going to invest more money there. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And there is no improvement. And so it seems to me that the only actual policy that has lessened demand on our health care is euthanasia, because obviously wow. dead people don't require health care. And when I speak like this, people say, oh, you're getting pretty flippant, Alex. I'm thinking, well, no, start thinking it through. Look at all the policies our government has gone through and are, are, have instituted and how many, how, how many of those policies have had a positive effect upon our nation healthcare things. No, there hasn't been. Euthanasia has actually lessened the cost of healthcare. And so, and there's nothing good about this. It's, it's actually, to me, it's abandonment that we've experienced. This is a form of abandonment. This isn't freedom. 
They sold it to us as freedom. They sold it to us as choice. And they sold it to us as autonomy. Then why are they talking about euthanasia for newborns? Newborns don't uh, have choice. They don't have autonomy. It's not about their freedom. It's about killing. It's about killing somebody with a disability. That's what it's about. Um, You know, really, this has gone beyond the pale in my own country. I was just speaking in Slovenia recently. Slovenia is a small European country just, just, just east of Italy, just south of Austria. And they're having a government that's similar to ours. It's quite socialist in Slovenia. The government's talking about legalizing euthanasia. And I made the comment. I said, well, you know, I hear Slovenia's got similar similar healthcare problems as Canada. Long waiting lists, people not being able to get care for. You know, if this is the only type of healthcare reform you can offer, that's pretty sad. That's pretty sad upon a nation that they're willing to kill their people because they're not willing to care for them. And that's exactly what we have. Uh, in states like Ohio, you need to be concerned also because, of course, the pressure is on to legalize assisted suicide. Uh, you don't have a bill this year, but you've had bills in the past. It's just a matter of time where you're going to get another assisted suicide bill. And we have to be very clear when we're talking about these things. The other side wants to re, you know, redo the language, tell you it's something it's not. They want to sell it as freedom. They want to tell you it's it's all about your choice. They want to, they want to change the language. They're going to call it assisted dying and make it sound like it's palliative care when really it's killing. They're going to do all these kind of things and then going to tell you some awful stories. And of course, you're human beings. So you're going to be affected by the awful stories. Absolutely, you're going to be. Uh, but in the end, do we kill people because they're going through a difficult time of their life or do we properly care for them? This is the fundamental question. But when it comes down to it, we have to call this what it is. And too many people want to go to those uh, safe language words and say, oh, well, you know, it's a little bit of assisted dying. No, what we're doing is we're poisoning people to death. That's what we're doing. Okay. Uh, they're, they're feeling compelled to ask for this because they feel they have no other choice. They have no other options. This isn't about freedom. It's not about choice. And certainly it's not about autonomy when somebody else is involved with killing you. That's just a lie. It's a lie just to, uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's also like that big lie, the big lie that you hear over and over and over again, suddenly you believe it's true. That's what they're doing here. It's the repeating of the lie so often that people actually believe it's true. Well, Alex, that's some great clarity on this issue. And we certainly appreciate the time today that you've taken to help us unpack this and want to wish you all the best with uh, with the work you're doing with the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition and and thank you so much um oh, before we go just yep. where where can people follow your work if they want to find more yeah i'm easy to find it's euthanasia prevention coalition uh it comes up uh if you want to read articles about this to keep up to date you should just you can see on the website there's my email uh info at epcc.ca.ca means canada sorry um <laughs> and um you can email me and I'll keep you up to date on everything. On top of it, I have a blog, which we're constantly publishing articles. And you can get to that by just clicking on the blog thing on the website. Uh, we are the uh, world's uh, uh, largest provider of information on euthanasia and assisted suicide. And uh, we'll keep you up to date. And hopefully uh, this will never happen in Ohio. Amen. Well, thank you so much for the work you're doing. God bless you. And thanks for joining the narrative today. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Narrative, presented by CCV and produced by Wessler Media. If you found today's episode insightful, leave us a review or rating and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We're your hosts, Mike Andrews, Aaron Bear, and David Mahan, and we'll see you next time on The Narrative.